you open your Bibles to Matthew 25, we are uh, down to two sermons. So this is the second to last sermon in the book of Matthew, at least for a time. We'll return during March and finish off because Matthew 26, 27, 28 are the last day of Jesus' life. And so we'll hit that all in one month during Easter. We're in Matthew chapter 25, and I'm going to read a very familiar parable probably to you, verse 14 to uh, verse 30. This is what God's Word says. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. And then he went away. And he who had received the five talents went at once and traded them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. He who had received the five talents came forward, bringing the five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And also, and he also who had two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his, an- his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place will there be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is God's Word. Jesus has been speaking about the second coming. This is the time period, again, as we're in Matthew 24 uh, and 25. He is answering two questions. One was the first half, or up to the first half of 24, when is the temple going to be destroyed? He answered that in this generation. The second question, which was, when is the world going to end? When is the end of the age, which was commenced by His literal return? And Jesus says, you don't really know. It's not going to happen in this generation. It's going to happen at some point. You're unexpected. And so, He is in these parables talking about that time period between when Jesus ascended to, to be with the Father in heaven and the time He returns. The time period that we are in right now. And so these parables have great meaning for us, and I think we perhaps have been dismissive of them as just nice moral little lessons. The parable of the talents uh, is probably one of the most well-known of Jesus' parables, and as such, it's usually one of the most or least understood because it's uh, used for, I think, wrong purposes. The three parables, as I said, in Matthew 25, so we saw one last week, we see one now, and we'll see uh, a similar parable 
next week, they're told in the context of this future second coming of Christ. That's what they're about. These parables are uh, some of the last things that Jesus teaches before He goes to the cross. And they are therefore really important because they are the final words of, of a man who is already condemned to die. Like the most important last things He wants to share. This is not just a parable about making sure you use your time, talent, and treasure for the Lord, though I think that is certainly part of it. It's a parable about judgment. And we see next week uh, a very clear picture of final judgment. But as with this last parable, Jesus is using the picture of this Master and His servants to describe what the Kingdom of Heaven will be like when it comes in its fullness. Understood rightly, I think, Christians should find this parable really challenging, um, similar to the previous parable, because it reveals that what we do now in this life matters. I said last week we can think too far, or a couple weeks ago, too far about the future and not enough about the present, and, and there's this tension between those two. What Jesus is going to say here is what we do now matters. How quickly I think we forget that when God redeems through Christ, when He justifies, when He adopts, when He gives someone new life, eternal life, He doesn't swoop in and rescue us from this life. He could have. He leaves us here to do something. Namely, to live a life in Him and steward all that He has entrusted to us for Him. And that all is a very broad all that will try to be inclusive of everything, including your time and your breath. These three parables are going to tell us three different things. It's already said, look, be ready for the end. We're going to hear how certain the end is, but now it's this idea of we are to be working until the end. And I recognize when I say a phrase like working until the end, some of you start to twitch internally, theologically, whatever. You shouldn't, but you are. Working until the end makes you feel uncomfortable. And I am hopeful that there will be a day when I say a word like work or effort or do, and I don't have to give a theological caveat every time to say, we're saved by grace, not works. Seems like every time I do say anything about work, I have to give this extra explanation. So there you go, just gave it. Working until the end is biblical language. And it's something that I think we all have to come to an understanding of in light of and not apart from the gospel. Working until the end in light of the gospel as a foundation that we're building upon. More than once, Jesus says. The one who endures to the end will be saved. And so, this parable and others like it are helping us understand what Jesus means by enduring to the end beyond just passively persevering. It's got to be more than just passive perseverance to endure to the end. I think this parable, like many others, begins by giving us a very right perspective that we are very forgetful about to understand all of life. If it's not obvious, the Master here 
represents God the Father. And every story begins, every story Jesus tells is similar to this, begins with a master or God who calls servants and entrusts to them His property. That's key. Parable after parable, it's the master's field, the master's house, the master's money, the master's feast. It's God's stuff. We are in God's story. He is not in ours. We answer to Him. God does not answer to us. God created a good world and men rebelled against His perfect rule and His perfect love. And whether men acknowledge it or not, this is God's world. And that includes everything. That includes you. That includes me. That includes all things that we can see visible and all things that we cannot see that are invisible. Like time. Like the breath we have, the energy we have, the talents we have. That's all God's. Well, I built my business on my own efforts. With the brain and the hands that God gave you. Everything is the Lord's. He is the Creator. We are creation. He is not obligated to us in any way, but we are without doubt obligated and accountable to Him in every way. All is grace. And that's where everything must begin. And that's where Jesus' story begins. By grace, these three different men have jobs. They are hired as stewards of the Master's stuff. And by grace, they are each given different amounts of money or Master's stuff of His property to steward for the Master. According to various topical Bibles, the one who possessed the five talents, talents is a monetary measurement, but the five talents of gold or silver would be a multimillionaire by today's standards. Lots of money. Some calculate a talent to be equivalent to 20 years of wages. Imagine 20 years of wages times five. It's a lot of money. Other scholars estimate a little more conservatively, but regardless, it's a lot of money. And the amount is really immaterial. It doesn't matter. What is significant is that each one is given the master's property, and each one is given according to their ability. Do you notice that? See, the master, or God, only appears unfair in the distribution of talents, whether it be money, or giftedness, or opportunity, whatever you want to say, it only appears unfair when we play the compare game. I know many of us don't think we're rich. We also don't think we're poor. We don't think we're smart, but we're not dumb. Like We do that by playing the compare game. We look at everyone else. One thing we need to understand is that everything we have, everything you have, and everything you don't have is from God. Do you have that? Everything you have and everything you don't have is from God. God is given according to His distribution, His arrangement, His will. I love... 
Colossians 4.17, which is one of the last verses of the book of Colossians. And Paul says to a man named Archippus, says, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. In other words, get your eyes off of other people and onto the Lord who gives. The Master in this story goes away and he's away for a long time after he's made this distribution. And with God-given, Master-given talents and wealth and stuff in hand, each servant goes into the world and they each work differently. As stewards, a steward is a very specific title, a very specific role. They would be responsible not just to uh, expected to protect what's been given to them, but also to enrich. And they would expect to experience blessing in this role, because it was an honor to be in the role, to take care of the master's stuff, but they would also expect to increase the greatness of the master. That's what the point was. They would experience joy and blessing of being in this important role, but the role was devoted to making much of the Master's stuff. He's going to return for his stuff. What, you, what have you done with it? So, we see here in Jesus' story, the master, master does return after they've worked. and We'll talk about what they did. And it says he returns to settle accounts with the servants to basically judge their work. That's another word we don't like. Put those together. Judge and work. Oh my gosh, that's like the worst thing you can say to a Christian. Don't judge me. I have to work. He comes back to judge the work that they've done. These are Jesus' words. It makes us very uncomfortable to consider whether we'll be judged as Christians. And in one sense, we're not. And in another sense, we very much are. We are saved by grace, irrevocably, and adopted unconditionally. For those who put their faith in Christ, you will not be judged on whether or not you're a son or daughter in Christ. That has been decided by grace through faith in the person and work of Jesus. The Bible is very clear that salvation is by grace through faith, apart from works, but the Bible is also very clear that the kind of faith that saves saves does produce work. And it makes us very uncomfortable to read passages like this parable. We think, oh, that's just a story. But then you have passages like 1 Corinthians 3, I'm sorry, 3, verse 13, where Paul says this: each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of each what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation, which is Jesus, if you read earlier, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though himself will be saved, but only through fire. That's a lot of rewarding and judging on the day. Yes, it is. And it's speaking of return of Christ. This is not a parable about works that save us, but it is indicating there are works that God rewards. 
And in the parable, upon his return, the master discovers that the first two stewards have doubled his money. And the two servants, according to the parable, are rewarded. The master says, first of all, well done, good and faithful servant. And that is a phrase that I look forward to hearing. As I stand before the Lord, and He doesn't say, well, I mean, you did okay. You see what John did over here? That was really good. I mean, your, your stuff wasn't bad. I recognize that we've all been given certain things, certain opportunities, certain gifts, certain talents, certain roles, certain experiences. And when he says, well done, good and faithful servant, you realize he says it to the same guy who had five and the same guy who had two. We are not judged by comparison. We are judged according to what God has said. This is what you have. Be faithful. We're not judged by even the fruitfulness, but the faithfulness of which we care for that which we've been entrusted with. He says, well done, good and faithful servant. It's like hearing your dad say, good job. Right? It's not like, uh, and, and let's be honest, Many of us have jacked up dads. Many of us are jacked up dads. There's something about hearing your father say, well done, that doesn't matter how messed up your dad is, you want to hear that. It feels good. And imagine hearing from the perfect father. He not only says, well done, he empowers them with more stuff. He says, look, you've been faithful a little. I'm going to put you over a lot. And then, I think the most important thing he says Come in. He invites him in. He says, come into the joy of your master, which is the true reward. Just come be with me. It doesn't appear that these guys were motivated by the potential of the reward. It seems like they just understood their job. But that begs the question: is it wrong to be motivated by eternal reward? Some of us, I won't say self-righteous, but some of us balk at the idea of working for reward. I think at times in an attempt to sound um, holy, we'll talk about working exclusively out of a grateful heart. Oh, I don't work for reward. I just work out of a love for Jesus. That's enough. And I think it should be. That's a pure and very right motivation, but it doesn't have to be the only one. I don't believe that there's anything wrong with working for reward from the Lord. It was good enough for Paul, who seemed to be very devoted to it, and I think it should be good enough for us. What that means is that our work matters now and in eternity. That there's going to be reward for the work that we do as Christians. And although I don't know exactly what heavenly reward is, I'm expecting it's probably a lot better than I can imagine. But here's the catch. I'm wise enough to know 
that a life that is oriented toward obtaining heavenly reward will probably result in a life here like Jesus. And guess what life was like for Jesus? Difficult. Because he gave himself constantly for others. And so if the pursuit of heavenly reward means I pour out my life to serve others, I think it's a pretty darn good motivation. This is not prosperity gospel. This is like anti-prosperity gospel. Where I'm going to honor God by living like Christ, which means I will pour out my heart, spend my time, my talent, my treasure out of love and response to the Lord, but for the love of others. My life will be like Christ here, suffering, perhaps impoverished, sacrificed to the point where it actually hurts a little bit, or a lot. Well, the Master finally comes to the servant who had received the one talent. This is the man with zero work. There is nothing to be evaluated. He did nothing. And the servant has explanation for why he did nothing with the talent that the master gave him. He buried it, which we talked about this this week with my kids. And the first response was like, that sounds wise. That's what the kids responded like, that sounds good. Put the money away and protect it. And so many of us will read that like, well, yeah, if you don't have the rest, you're like, Pfft. Good thinking, man. Good thinking. Don't want to risk it. Don't want to risk, you know, this temporary stuff that's all going to burn up for the Lord. You want to hold on to it. Just in case. He explains his reasons for doing nothing as an entrusted steward, but a very specific role. And essentially, check out what he does. Now, I think this is hugely important especially for today's culture, especially for those who are arguing against having to do anything. And there is a contingent of people that believe that. They won't say it overtly, but they say it very passively. This man essentially declares that what he knows about the Master's character, or said another way, what he knows about God's character as the justification for what the Master calls laziness. You catch that? The master's going to say, you are lazy and wicked and slothful. He's like, well, it's because what I know about you. What I know about you is why I did nothing. That seems pretty backwards, but that's what you have today in the church. People aren't just saying, well, I don't do anything. They're saying, you know what? Because God is like this, because God has done this, I can be lazy. They don't call it laziness. He knew that the master, he said, was a hard man and they reaped where he did not sow and did nothing. And ironically, you know what the master does? Uses the same description. He says, yeah, you knew I was like this, therefore you should have done something. It is woefully wrong to use the character of God to abdicate our responsibility. God is sovereign. This is what it would sound like, right? God is sovereign, so I don't need to evangelize. I mean, why evangelize? He's just going to pick people and show people I don't need to do anything. 
God is loving. I don't need to judge anything. God is forgiving. I don't need to fight sin. What we know about God is typically going to lead us to action, not apathy. Because our God is an active, moving, loving God in whom love is more than sentiment. So the Master's response to the servant of the one talent ends up revealing the heart of the problem, which is actually the heart. And I've always been struck by the numbers in this parable because they seem kind of random. 5-2-1. Right? Why not 5-4-3? Or 3-2-1 or whatever. Like 5-2-1. So I kind of like numbers. Kind of looking up the Hebrew understanding of numbers and what they viewed them as. I think I might have shared last week that the number 5 typically symbolizes grace. It's what it's known, familiar, uh, or used repeatedly to describe The number two symbolizes division or separation. So what you have is those who experienced grace are separated. Number two, I know it's weird, but I'm going with it. Separated from the one. And the number one in Scripture always symbolizes unity. That makes sense, right? But there can only be one number one. And that number one is supposed to be The Lord. And for this man, all you hear him talk about is himself. I was fearful. I knew what you were going to do. For this man, the number one is himself. And the sin of unbelief is really the rejection of God's lordship as number one. And so the Master, in many ways, condemns the man only for narrowly thinking about himself. He didn't think about the Master. He didn't think about anyone else. He thought only about himself. And his selfishness was most evidence in his passivity. See that? It's not like he did a bunch of selfish things. He did nothing and that was equally if not more selfish. He failed to actually live for the Master in this life. He failed to risk anything for the Master in this life. Something he was fully aware that he was responsible to do. Therefore, he is without excuse. It's not a surprise. Romans 1 is so clear when it speaks about Unbelievers who knew God but did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. And many do that even if they claim to be servants of the King. Well, unlike the others, this man is not invited into the joy of the Master. And this is one of those passages that disturbs us when we think about Jesus' meek and mild, loving Savior we see that any common grace, that would be grace shown to anybody, right? The rain falls on the fields of the evil just as much as it falls on the, on the fields of the good. Any common grace, any grace that was shown to this man is actually taken away and given to what he calls the worthy servants. And the unworthy servant is thrown into the outer darkness and separated from the joy of the Master forever. In that place, Jesus says, 
which he has said more than once, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, a phrase that literally means the grinding of one's teeth together. Though there will be weeping for pain, there will be no cries for escape, only rage against a master deemed unfair. That's harsh and real and sobering. That there are those, just as we saw the virgins, in what appears to be the visible church who truly don't love the Lord. Whom the Lord comes and says, I never knew you. Now, let me address uh, a little bit grace and works. There seems to be two kinds of people that tend towards extremes. And so we'll call one hyper-works and we'll call one hyper-grace. And I'm using those, obviously, very generally. Hyper-works people wrongly believe that their work matters too much. That that is the basis of their salvation is what they do. On the other extreme are the hyper-grace people who wrongly believe their work doesn't matter enough. And the loss of a gospel-centeredness for both of these people is usually the result of a bad experience with the other kind of person. So you have a hyper-grace person who, who basically comes out of an incredibly legalistic church. And then you have a hyper-works person that came out of a family with no rules and, and all kinds of brokenness and like, we got to clamp down and do stuff. They're both very reactive. They are both very deceived, and they both blame the other for all the problems in the church. And they both are very entitled, and I'll explain what that means. But most importantly, they are both wrongly focused on themselves while they both claim to focus on Jesus. So the hyperworks people who would read this and go, do, 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 they are very self-dependent and often very self-righteous. They believe that they save themselves, that they gain approval, that they elicit God's love by what they do. Believing they have to do everything, they feel entitled to get paid by God for their good work. And they live largely fearfully before the Lord, wondering if they've worked enough, wondering if they're going to get paid for what they've done. I think they make the grace of Jesus more expensive than Jesus, at least than His blood. And they encourage others to do more and think less. On the other side, you have the kind of hyper-grace people, and they're really no different in their self-focus. What they do is they simply sit and ponder how much God loves them. God loves me. God forgives me. God accepts me. And they think about themselves constantly. And yet, they do nothing in response to that love. I'm generalizing, obviously. They're content to spend hours contemplating how much Jesus loves and celebrates how little they have to do. And unlike the hyper-works people who I think make grace more expensive than the blood of Jesus, the hyper-grace make grace cheaper than the death of Jesus 
and they encourage others to believe more and do less. Now, both of these are both right and wrong, ironically. See, belief in the gospel, acceptance of the person and work of Jesus Christ, brings us under the control of the love of Jesus. That's what the Bible says. In 2 Corinthians 5, it says, For the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this. So this is where it comes from. The love of Christ is controlling me. I've concluded this. What? That one has died for all. Therefore all have died. And He died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him for their sake died and was raised. That's the Gospel. The love of Christ controls them because they have believed the Gospel. Which leads them to a life where they no longer live for themselves, but for Him. The good news that God became man in Jesus Christ, that He lived a life we should have lived and He died the death we should have died in our place and that He rose from the dead three days later, proving that He was the Son of God, offering salvation to all who would repent and believe. So truly believing the Gospel, truly receiving the love of Jesus motivates us to love. And it motivates us to live like Christ for God who is completely other-oriented. See, on the, on the road of the Gospel, there are two ditches that we can fall into. And I've tried to talk about both of them. We fall into them at different times. One ditch gets stuck on the crucifixion. And the other gets stuck exclusively on the resurrection. The crucifixion ditch focuses on our position in Christ through His death, who we are. And, and I believe that. But if you never get out of the crucifixion to the resurrection, you're in trouble. The resurrection ditch focuses on our power in this life, what we do. So we have who we are and what we do. And we go, hey, I'm over here. I'm in Jesus. Jesus loves me. Yes. And we get stuck there. Then we're over here and like, I got a new life. I got to go. I got to do. Like, okay, yes. But if you don't have the right motivation, you're going to be off. The full Gospel brings them both together where our identity in Christ becomes the motivation, the means, and the model for what we do. We're not simply a saved people. We are saved people who are sent. Jesus prayed in John 17 to sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. As you sent Me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So we start with the world, I mean the Word, and we get sent into the world. They go together. Belief in the Gospel results, results in two things. A Christ-like position and a Christ-like life. Both. Being sent like Christ means we are sent into the world like Christ. Like Christ, we enter into brokenness. Like Christ, we dwell with people. Like Christ, we proclaim the glories of God. Like Christ, we love the world. We serve the world. We bring healing to the world. Like Christ, we die to ourselves in order to see others live. And if we are ever unwilling or undesirable or fearful of such a life, then we have really never beheld the glories of the Gospel and the beauties of His grace. You can't say, I am saved by grace and not have it move you to show grace to others. They go together. 
As we close, I simply want us to understand that grace not only saves us, it changes us. It changes us and frees us to work with joy and without fear of failure. Not just sit in joy, to work with joy. Expecting and hoping for more joy. And each of us has received a very unique ministry according to the grace that He has given us in Christ by His Spirit. And so, how we live out that grace may not look the same as everybody else. We don't play the compare game. But what I do know for everybody is because of Christ, there is no longer any have-tos. But there certainly are get-tos. I get to delight in Jesus through obedience. I get to witness to Jesus' love through evangelism. I get to share Jesus' love through justice. I get to enjoy working and doing because I believe. I think James says it well. Bringing the two together, he says, but be doers of the Word and not just hearers only. Right? the, The implication is we are hearing the Word. So we're starting there. For if anyone is a hearer of the Word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he is like, or buries his talent in the dirt. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. What starts with the Word doesn't end there. But at some point, you have to stop looking in the mirror and go. Right? Now, mind you, you need to look in the mirror regularly to remember who you are in Christ. I I believe that. But the one extreme never stops looking in the mirror. I'm so beautiful in Jesus. So forgiven and so loved. Yes, these are true. But you're saved to be sent. And then the other people will never look in the mirror, so their motivation to do anything is all about them. You've got to look in the mirror, this is who I am in Christ, and then you go and occasionally look back to make sure what you're doing and how you're going is because of what Jesus did. You always want to be acting of, out of who God says you are and not who you think you need to be. So we take communion every week. And I want you to view communion as a mirror. It's a mirror. It's the mirror James talks about. We come up and we see, if you will, first of all, we look and and we're reminded of the blood and the bread of who we were. As you're coming up to the table, you're like, oh man, I was so bad. I was so bad, so broken, that it took the blood of the Lord Jesus, the Son of God, to wash away my sin. That's how messed up I was. But as you get up and you look in the mirror, what do you see? Jesus. Because God loved you enough to send His Son. And His Son loved you enough to die for you. 
so that you might live not for yourself, but for Him who for your sake died. So we come up, and this is our reminder every week of who we are in Christ. And as we leave, we are sent to do something for Christ. And we look back at that mirror every time you start feeling the motivation get off into that ditch. Oh, I'm getting work to get paid. Not in this life you're not. See the cross as you come up. And see the living, resurrected Christ. It's not just the crucifixion. It is the resurrection. Put them both together and live for Him for your sake died. Let's pray. Holy Father, glorious Son, powerful Spirit, we come before You confessing our own weakness to believe in all that Jesus has done for us. We confess that we have a tendency at times to try and work our way to Your acceptance. And we recognize that as so wrong. And yet at times, we confess of sitting and thinking about Your love so much so that we do nothing. And that words like work as unto the Lord do become bad words. It's very clear, Lord, that You restored us so that we could bring restoration to others. That You saved us so that we could be sent for Your glory and for our joy. So I pray You will help us navigate the tension between these two things. Where our faith, Lord, our conviction and deep belief in the Gospel, our acceptance that You have loved us through Jesus Christ becomes our motivation to move. And through Christ, we have the power to actually work. And through Christ, we see an example of how we're to work for Your glory which may result even in our sacrifice in this world, but will result in ultimate reward that we have all the right to hope in. Thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us and Your forgiveness for our weakness. It is in the name of Jesus whom we ask. Please return quickly, we pray. Amen.